Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd invite you to take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It's still Easter, right? In fact, our platform looks a little bit different. Not only is the tomb empty, the tomb is gone. If you weren't here last week, we had a big reconstruction of a tomb right here, and I thought that, that's good. The tomb is not only empty, it's gone. <clears throat> Would it be okay if I tell you a resurrection story today? It had been quite a long week, interesting week, crazy week for the Jesus followers. Palm Sunday, as we recall it in the, in the text, Jesus approached Jerusalem, sent two disciples on ahead to fetch him a donkey. They bring it back to him and he gets on this donkey and heads into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday, palm branches are waving. Some people put their cloaks on the ground and Jesus proceeds into the city and everybody is cheering and they are excited that Jesus is coming. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was the chant on that particular day. I mean, Jesus had been in and around Jerusalem before. Word had spread all over Israel about his ministry and how he did miraculous things. And, and I, can, I can imagine that those crowds and even maybe some of the people who heard that he was coming uh, are thinking, hey, Jesus is here. Jesus is coming. All those people who are hungry are going to be fed. All those people who have diseases, they're going to be healed. How quickly things can change, right? Moments in our life that are, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to the shouts and the chants on Friday. People totally turned on him. And now they're shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. And they did. They killed him. And they put him in that tomb. How things can change in the course of, of one week. And his disciples, his followers, all those who had gone all over the countryside with him are left scratching their head. What happened? How did this go so well for so long and then all of a sudden it just crashed? How did he end up tacked up on that cross and dead and buried? Well, some women went out to the tomb and they found that the tomb was empty and they came back and they shared the story and, and most of them are... Ah, I don't know what to think. They're so disillusioned and, and the hope is gone, the faith that they had in Jesus and, and in, in God who they believed had sent Jesus, is, it's just it's waning a little bit. It's hidden. We pick up the story in, in 
In Luke 24, he tells us of the resurrection, and then in 24, starting in, in verse 13, we, we come upon two travelers, two of, two of Jesus' disciples, followers that are, well, they think all is lost, and they're heading away. Verse 13, now that same day, so resurrection day, tomb is empty, women come back, share the story, people are, ah, I don't know about that. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. It's interesting, we kind of read over this once in a while, and oh yeah, the road to Emmaus, we, we know about that story, there's two people that go on that and and we'll get to it, but Jesus is going to come up and chat with them, but we don't know very much about this little village, this town called Emmaus. We know that it's seven miles away, so it must be, but um, we don't actually know which town this is, which I kind of like that, because they're taking a road to nowhere. They don't know where they're going. Have you ever been in a spot in life where you just need to get in the car and drive? hit the road, get out of town, clear your mind, something's gone wrong, you don't know how to process it, and maybe the road will help. And these two are, I can imagine the pace and the body posture, right? Devastated. Their savior is now dead. The one they put all of their hopes in to redeem and restore Israel is sealed up in a tomb. And now they hear that maybe the tomb's empty and they're and they're going they're taking this road seven miles to nowhere it's probably just an intersection of a town you know one of those little dangling flashing red lights that's where they're going I get to verse 14 they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So in the slow pace, hey, remember that, remember that time when, when we were on that hillside and it was getting late in the day and, well, everybody was getting hungry. Remember, remember that time when Jesus, he gathered those 12 disciples and, and said, Hey, I want you to feed these people. You, you, you remember that time? It, they didn't have enough food, and, and, but they found some loaves of bread and, and some fish. And, and everybody in that crowd ate. You remember that? You remember that time when we were gathered in that house and, and church was just packed that day? It must have been like Easter Sunday. And... and uh, and there was like no chairs left and you, the door was so crowded that remember those four guys that they, they brought their crippled friend with them because they wanted Jesus to heal him and they couldn't get in. And remember when we were standing there and, and we were singing that song and, and just the roof started to crumble above us. Remember that time? And we looked up, and there's these four grinning guys. And they're looking down. <laughs> Sorry about your roof. 
and they lower, they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks up at them and he sees, he saw something in those friends and he looked at the guy and he said, your sins are forgiven. Remember that time? Jesus forgave that guy's sins and then, and then, and then he healed him. Or, or you remember that time when we were just going along and, and, and there was that blind person and Jesus made that mud and packed it on his eyes? healed him and he could see it. You remember that time? Oh, remember, remember that time when Lazarus had died and we got word. And it took a couple days to get there, but when, when we got there, when we got there, Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and out came Lazarus. Remember him wrapped up in all the mummy stuff and he could barely walk like this? But he was alive. Remember all those neat things, powerful things that, that Jesus had done? Oh, we had, we had hoped. We had hoped that he would be the one that would once and for all rescue us, save us from all of our suffering. If, there, if those two are anything like us, I imagine them telling those stories and then looking at what happened, I think they get to the question, why did, why did that have to happen? Well, why God? Well, we understood his teaching, it, 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 we heard him say that he was the Messiah. Why does it have to end like this? Why did, why did he have to die, God? Why did, why did my situation have to turn out this way? You ever get the why question going? Maybe there's fear. Maybe there's some sort of doubt. Maybe, maybe the, there's some sort of loss. There's all sorts of loss that we experience in life. Maybe they're wondering, why did it have to end like this? We're all going to walk this road to Emmaus during our life. And we get to those places where we recall and we recount as we're strolling along all the wonderful things that we've seen happen. And when they don't end up going how we think that they should go, sometimes we start the why question. He walked on water. He cast out the demons. He raised the dead. Why couldn't he come down off the cross? Why, why, why didn't God do it differently? Hmm. <laughs> That's a whole sermon right there. So they're discussing these things. Verse 15, And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So they're strolling along. You know, slow pace, probably looking down and I mean there's a lot of traffic in and out of Jerusalem 
for these high or these uh, high festivals, right? So it's not like they were alone on this road. There's foot traffic. Jesus is one of the travelers with them. And he starts and he's strolling along. And I just love this, that, you know, they are lost. They are grief-stricken. They are full of doubt. They have this why question on their mind. And Jesus comes and he seeks them out. He finds them right where they are. He finds you right where you are in your journey going through life when you're full of grief and doubt and fear and loss and all of those things. Jesus will come up alongside you and he'll start walking the journey with you. But they didn't know that it was Jesus. I don't know, maybe he was wearing a hoodie or something, you know, like, hey, watch this. I'm going to walk and see how long it takes them to figure out who I am. It's a divine passive there. They're they were not able to see because they were not able to see. There was some God activity going on here. He didn't just come up and say, hey, surprise, because part of the journey is about, is, is about what's going to happen in, in just a couple verses here. So he shows up and he starts, he meets them right where they're at, starts walking with them. You know, this is what Jesus does. Earlier in Luke, we're told that he came to seek and save the lost. I would put these two followers kind of in the lost category right now. They don't know where they're going. Their hopes were in one thing and reality is turning out, they think reality is turning out in a different way. And they're stumbling around and Jesus comes and finds them to seek and save the lost. They don't recognize him even though he's standing right there with them. Step for step, he walks with them. And I suppose that happens today, too. You might show up at church or Bible study week after week after week, and maybe you don't recognize that Jesus is right there with you. You're just kind of walking through what you think you're supposed to be doing, and that's great. Sometimes... Sometimes we don't see when, when Jesus, when you're, when you're walking through what you would call the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes we're so focused on our own situation and how rotten it is that we've, we don't see that Jesus is, is right there. He's the one who comes to bind up the wounds, to heal the brokenhearted. Sometimes we're so focused on other things, we miss when Jesus is right there all along. So Jesus, he joins in the conversation and he says, hey, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And that question brought the slow procession to a stop. Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? This is what Cleopas, one of the disciples, one of them is named. <clears throat> he asks Jesus, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened to you? <laughs> I mean, he'll never live this one down. And when all the disciples get together for their reunions, you know, 25 years down the line, hey, Cleopas, remember that time when you asked Jesus, are you the only one who didn't know what happened in Jerusalem? Jerusalem. 
and Jesus, he, he kind of plays along. He says, what things? <laughs> Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. What things? <laughs> I love how just he plays along with him. You ever play dumb on things? Like, <laughs> happens in my house once in a while. None of my family is here this morning. They're up with the scouts on a mountain somewhere, so I can tell stories, right? <laughs> Hopefully they don't watch the tape. <laughs> Without specifics, once in a while something will happen around the house, and the question will be, hey, did you know about this? I'm like, I don't know. It must have been one of the kids. <laughs> You just play dumb once in a while, and, and Jesus is here. There's, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened? And he says, about what? Did something happen in Jerusalem? And then Cleopas, he says, well, about Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to this. He was a prophet. At this moment, He's only a prophet. He's no longer who they thought was the Messiah or the Savior. He's dead in their minds. And so he couldn't have been the Messiah, the Savior, because Messiahs don't die. And so now who they thought was Messiah, now, well, I guess, well, maybe he's just a prophet. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Those verses give us the whole gospel. This is what happened. They even, they even say on the third day the tomb is empty and they're blind to the fact that Jesus is the one who just asked them the question about what's going on. We had hoped he was the one. They were right. He was the Messiah, but they were, they were hoping for a different kind of rescue. Okay, they, they, were, hoping, they were hoping for a political rescue. Maybe they were even wearing their hat, the, the MEGA hats. Make Israel Great Again hats. And, the, <clears throat> and they're on this stroll because they wanted a political rescue. They wanted Jesus to come and say to the Romans, get out of here and conquer them. They wanted Jesus to walk into the temple and totally cleanse it and change it back to the right way of worship. But none of that so far has happened in their minds. He's dead. What they don't see yet is instead of that political kind of rescue, they, they got something far greater. They got a spiritual rescue that would restore them to God, 
that would take care of their sin once for all. Would, forgiveness would be poured out on everybody who would step in and accept it. But they don't see that yet. We had hoped he was a prophet. He was powerful in, in word, in deed. His teaching and his miracles were fantastic. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement right there. I think any one of us would be thrilled that if at our funeral somebody would say of us, wow, he was powerful. She was powerful in word and deed. Would you be happy with that? I would raise my hand. Sign me up for that right now. But when you're talking about Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Commander of Heaven's armies, the Alpha and the Omega, it just comes up a little bit empty. We had hoped. We had hoped. You see, if you reduce Jesus to just a prophet a good guy who has nice things to say and his teaching is powerful and he, and he does some you know, miracles and things like that. If you reduce the first century Jesus to just a good guy and a prophet, that first century guy is not going to do a whole lot for you today. But if you, but if you see him, if you come to faith, if you come to believe in the power of the resurrection... Now we're talking about the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the Savior who has conquered death once for all. That guy can do a lot for you. He has the power to pick you up from all that junk you're dealing with in your life and transform you. It doesn't mean that all of that junk and stuff just disappears, but he reframes your perspective. And when we sing about how great thou art, you can... You can believe in it. You can build your life on that kind of a foundation when Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, the Almighty, All-Powerful One. And these two, they missed, they kind of missed the point. They had the whole story right. But they were missing that resurrection part. And if you miss the resurrection, you're going to be like these two, strolling on the road to Emmaus, headed nowhere. But when you recognize that Jesus is alive and the resurrection is true, it changes everything. The sight, the, the blind receive their sight. So they're rehearsing all of this to Jesus. We had hoped, but... And Jesus is... He's given them the space to air what they were feeling, to share what was on their heart, to voice out loud their disappointments, their fear, their doubts, their, their questions, all of that. He, he allowed them that space, but then he's had enough. And Jesus, he says, verse 25, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So, you fools. Not like, like foolish, like funny haha fools, but foolish as in dull, obtuse. Why are you so slow to believe and to understand all of these things? They were slow to believe and they were quick to give up. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sounds like us a lot of the times, right? One of the themes that comes up in, in this passage 
is that Jesus Christ is made, made known to us through revelation. And we're told that their eyes were opened along this journey to the truth and the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And through, the teaching, through Jesus teaching them, um, they came to understand what the scriptures had been saying all along. So Jesus has now brought to their attention that, hey, I've been trying to teach you this for three years now. You've had the scripture for hundreds of years now. Scripture points to me. That's what he's been trying to teach them all the way along, and they're just slow. They, they're slow on the uptake. They, they don't get it. Jesus has to do a little remedial work here, and, and he's fine with that. See, one way that Jesus is made known to us is through the Bible. So when Jesus has heard enough from these two, uh, he gets after them for being so dull, so blind to what Scripture had told them all along. And he's, his question is, how could you miss? How could you miss the Messiah and what was supposed to happen to the Messiah as you, as you read through the pages of your Scripture, as you heard it read to you? How could you miss that the Messiah had to be rejected, had to suffer, had to die? It's clearly taught in Scripture, Jesus says. But see, Jesus, he has this question for him, but he's such a patient teacher. He brings it to their attention that, hey, come on, we can do better than this class. He's so patient. Isn't, isn't that good? He's patient with us and teaching us. Amen? Yes, I say, said amen several times this week over that one. Verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He takes them on a tour of what we know as the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. How cool would that be to have Jesus give us a survey account of the Bible? Right? I'd love to be in on that conversation. He connected all the dots for them, if you will, starting with Moses and going all the way through the prophets. Well, the question comes up, well, which scriptures did he share? Well, we don't know for sure, and I don't think Luke is trying to tell us that we have to pick and choose verses here and there. I don't think Jesus was strolling along and saying, hey, remember in Isaiah chapter such and such, verse number because they didn't have chapters and verses necessarily. Uh, I think in Jesus was telling them, hey, remember what Moses said? Remember what the prophets, remember what Isaiah said? He's not giving them a verse here and a verse there to proof text himself. He's pointing them to all of Scripture, explaining the story, like the, the broad brushstrokes, the, the grand scale because there are hundreds, there's hundreds of references in the Old Testament that point specifically to the person of Jesus, the, God's Messiah. I thought maybe it would be a good thing to, to go through a couple of those. Uh, over Lent, we went through the project of reading the entire Bible out loud, cover to cover. It took 72 hours and 50 minutes to get through the whole thing. And it was about a 40-day span. And 
I have read the entire Bible before, but I've never read the Bible in that short of a time span. And I can tell you that as I was reading, a bunch of these references, just I wanted to pause and highlight them and then go back and, and document. Oh, I'm going to have to do that another time. But it was, it was one of those where I just wanted to keep reading because there were so many things that were being connected that, and they were closer together than what they normally are that it was just an incredible journey along the way. And you, I'm reading through the Old Testament and I have people ask me questions a lot. Why do we have the Old Testament? They wonder about it. I mean, you read parts of the Old Testament and you go away scratching your head. That's true. Why? Why do we have all of that violence, brutality, documented for us in Scripture? But I would ask, has, has much changed in a couple thousand years? We think we're more sophisticated now, but we're every bit as brutal it's the people we read about here. There's so much talk of death and suffering, and, and then there's, there's so many pages that just talk about the sacrifices and dealing with sin and stuff like that. Why, why does all that have to be there? Well, as I was reading, it just occurred to me that Sin can't be in the presence of God. God gets to define sin, we don't get to define sin. And if sin can't reside in the presence of God and he wants to come and live amongst his people, they have to be cleansed and purified. And God gave them a process by which that could happen. But over and over and over and over again, the people kept God at bay. They pushed him away. Maybe they do okay for a little bit of time, but then, you know, pretty soon they're wanting to do it their own way. Well, God, we want to define sin for what we think it is. And he says, no, you can't, you can't do that. And so when you feel the weight of all the sin and all of the death and all of the brutality and, and all of the sacrificial systems and all of those sorts of things, it was just kind of overwhelming to me the, the magnificent grace that God extends to us. The overwhelming love that he poured out by sending Jesus to come and deal with all of that for us on our behalf. See, in the Old Testament, sin and death, the punishment was, the, for sins, the punishment was death oftentimes. Death or being disconnected from the people. You read it over and over again. Jesus came to die on that cross so that death and disconnection from our people don't have to happen for us. He took that on for us. The Old Testament points us to that Messiah, points us to that Savior, points us to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We needed God to do something drastic to redeem us. Well, there's hundreds of prophecies 
like I mentioned, um, that Jesus would be, uh, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, um, that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. All of those things are, are prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. I wanted to show you some because it's, it's helpful to connect some of these dots, some of the things that Jesus may have been rehearsing with these two as they're on their stroll. And um, so I want to show you several that specifically are related to the fact that the Bible says that God's Messiah, who is Jesus, would uh, face uh, rejection, suffering, and death. And so um, these are a few prophecies. So the Bible says that God's Messiah would be rejected, would be the rejected cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you know about building, uh, in the ancient times, they would find a cornerstone and it would be the first stone, stone that was set in place. And then the rest of the building would be built uh, from that to keep it square. And, and, and so Jesus was the cornerstone by which everything else would be measured and built, and the people rejected that cornerstone. The Bible says that God's Messiah would be betrayed. Um, Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. It says that he would be forsaken. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. It says that he would be scorned, mocked. Psalm 22, 8, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. The Bible says that he would be abandoned. Psalm 31, because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. That he would be plotted against. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. That he would be mocked or that he would be uh, silent before his accusers. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my ruin all day long. They scheme and lie. I am like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. That he would be mocked and abused. Isaiah 50, I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. That he would be pierced. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And he would be a willing sacrifice. There's this story when, when Abraham, when God says, hey, I want you to sacrifice that only son. And when they had, uh, when Abraham was leading 
Isaac to make that sacrifice to be obedient to God. Um, he had built this altar and was, was ready to sacrifice him when they had reached the place God had told him about. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and, and took the knife to slay his son. It, the Bible talks clearly that, that Jesus would be the willing sacrifice for us. Like Isaac did not fight against his father in this. It, Abraham's probably 100 years old, 100 over that. And we have this young strapping lad probably who probably easily could have defeated the old man, yet he went as a willing sacrifice. That he would be the Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, it talks about that last night that the people of Israel were in Egypt when, when God would send the plague of death into the Egyptian land. And the instructions were for the people, the Hebrew people, to find a Passover lamb, one that was without defect, and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood and sprinkle it on the door frames, on the top and on the sides, and, and that any house that was marked with the blood of that Passover lamb, the, the angel of death would, would pass over. Leviticus 17.11 talks about blood shed for atonement, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The Bible says that Jesus would be, that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And this is one of the, probably the main passages I think that Jesus might have reminded them about in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he has bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And finally he will be resurrected and conquer death. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, 
nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with the eternal pleasures at your right hand. And finally in Isaiah, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. I imagine Jesus, this was part of his conversation, pointing out the general themes that we just went through there. The people had been looking for God to send a savior to rescue and redeem them from, from their suffering. What they didn't understand was that scripture clearly told the story of how God would redeem and rescue them through suffering, the suffering of the Messiah. And so Jesus teaches them the word and his conversation takes them all the way up to their driveway. This little blinking light town, they get there. And Jesus pretends like he's going to keep going. They're turning this way. And like, I'm, I'm headed this way. But it's getting late. You, you should stay here with us. And Jesus accepts their invitation to hospitality and fellowship. But you know what? Jesus will walk that whole journey with you. He'll get to your driveway. And if you don't invite him in, he's going to keep going. He's on the move. It's, it's one thing to have the head knowledge of everything that we just talked about. The journey that Jesus most wants to take with you is moving the information that he's just gone over. How dull you are, how slow in believing you are, how slow in understanding you are to all of the head knowledge of this. But he really wasn't talking about the head knowledge. He, was, he really wanted to take the journey with, from the head to the heart with them. He wants all of that to come and make sense to them in a way that is personal to them, in a way that they understand that what Messiah came to do was for you. What Messiah came to do was for the whole world. And you can know about it, you can hear about it, but if, if all that is, is just, you, yes, I know all that information. I, can, I know people who can quote the Bible by a verse, but they don't believe it. It's all stuck up here. And Jesus wants to take that head knowledge and let it sink into your heart. And so Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm on this way. If you're just going to let that rattle around in your head, okay. But they said, no. Come in. Share a meal with us. And he goes in. He enters in. When you invite Jesus in, he will come in and sit at your table and help move that information from your head into your heart so that you know him as a person. So they're gathered around the table, which we're going to gather here in just a minute, around this table. And, and Luke tells us that when he sits down at the table, he is the guest. He's the invited guest. This is their home. Hey, stay with us. But he goes from being the invited guest to the host. They sit down at the table, and if, you are the, if you're the homeowner, 
you're the one in charge of the meal. But Jesus sits down and he takes charge and he takes the bread. He takes the bread. He breaks it, right? And he blesses it and he gives it back to them. That's exactly what he does in your life. When you invite him in, he'll take your life. He'll bless your life. He'll thank God for your life. There's painful parts sometimes because Jesus will break your life. He'll break your will. He'll break your pride. And those are things that have to happen in the human spirit for Jesus to be resident there. We have to give up on ourselves, not lose our identity or who we are, but we find our identity now in the person of Jesus. So he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and then he gives it back so that we might go about living a transformed life. And immediately, they, at that moment, they see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Finally, it all, wow, this is Jesus, the resurrected one, and then poof, he's gone. And they're so excited about it that they get up, and it's late already. They invited Jesus in because it's too late. You can't, you can't keep going. It's dangerous out there. But now, they're so excited, they've got to share this news with the rest of them, so they get up, it's seven miles. This is, you know, it probably took them a few hours to walk that journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, wherever that was. Now they have to go seven miles all the way back, and they get up at that very moment to go be witnesses, to go share all of the exciting things that happened. And so I imagine their pace is now, you know, one of hurriedness. What was slow and methodical and plodding before because their faith was gone, their hope was all lost, now they see the resurrected Jesus and he does this work in their life and everything that they had floating around in their head now sinks down into their heart and it makes sense. Woo! And off they go. Back to Jerusalem. And they find the disciples and the group gathered there, and they open the door, and, and they don't even get to share their story first. Somebody on the inside says, he's alive! He's resurrected! We've seen him! He appeared to Peter, too! And they're like, well, let us tell you what happened. We were on the road. He walked up alongside us, and all of these things happened. We didn't know it was him, and then he broke the bread, and then poof, he was gone. That's exciting. They begin to see that that Jesus' death is not the end of something. It's not, it doesn't end in a tragic kind of a sense, but it's the beginning of something. And along the way back, they say, what's captured my attention is, weren't our hearts burning inside us while he was teaching us, while he opened the scriptures? Didn't, wasn't your heart racing? Wasn't it pounding? What once, well, like we, were, we had totally felt like everything was dead. But then he started the, the scriptures with us and he was telling us the story and how they all pointed to him and, and the Messiah and how the, the Messiah had to come so that everybody could be saved. And did your heart beat a little bit faster? Our hearts were burning. And now Luke's a doctor and he, he, uh, he diagnoses them with heartburn. Their hearts were on fire inside their chest. They felt the life coursing through their body when Jesus was opening the scriptures to them. 
And that's really what my prayer is for you. That you would develop a serious case of heartburn. Every time you open the word of God, that your heart would beat just a little bit faster. That the resurrected, risen Lord would speak to you when you open the pages of Scripture and begin reading. And if it feels hollow and empty and dry, pray. Lord, help me to see you in Scripture. Keep reading. Find a phrase that just resonates with you and then think on that for a period of time. And over time, as you lift these things to God and as you keep your eyes in the Word, your heart will begin to beat faster and to burn inside you. What's in these pages will become alive because Jesus will be the one that's teaching you. So my prayer is that you would have a serious case of heartburn because all of us are going to walk this road to Emmaus. We're all going to be stricken with grief and fear and doubt. And sometimes we're going to want to think, oh, God, just, it's not, he's not real. He doesn't care about me or my situation. And we off we go. We hit the road. May your heart burn and beat just a little bit faster so that you can come to know the risen Savior. I pray that he would open the eyes of your heart. And when Jesus opens your eyes, miracles start to happen. You begin to see people like Jesus sees people. The enemies that you have, you start seeing them maybe as people you could be friends with. Those people who have hurt you in the past, you begin to see as people who God loves dearly just as much as he loves you. You see people who have hurt you as ones that God has forgiven, and, and when you have the eyes of your heart opened, you begin to see those people as ones that, ah, I think I could forgive them. When Jesus opens the eyes of your heart and you look in the mirror and that person staring back at you, and, and instead of seeing that person looking back at you as, as one who's been labeled a loser as worthless, as whatever people have said about you, when you look in that mirror and that person looks back to you, you start to see that person as one who Jesus went to the cross for, who God loves dearly. Jesus will meet you on the road to Emmaus. And my prayer is that he opens the eyes of your heart so that you could see and know him and when you, when you see that and when you sense that, invite him in. Invite him in. And he'll join you at your table. People of God said, amen.